Thank you guys for tuning in today and welcome back to another episode of The Source. I'm your host, Zan Raza, and today I'll be having a contextual discussion with Fabian Scheidler. Fabian Scheidler is an independent journalist and was one of the very first ones in Europe to interview Seema Hirsch on his groundbreaking article on how the US bombed the Nord Stream pipeline. He's the author of several books, the latest being The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization. Fabian, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Let us start with the latest development surrounding the Nord Stream pipeline, which was bombed last year by an unknown state actor. Last month, the world-renowned investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, who you interviewed recently, released an article detailing how the US bombed the Nord Stream pipeline. Today, the New York Times, the Deutsche Welle and many other mainstream media outlets are reporting, and let me quote their headline, uh, the New York Times. Intelligence suggests pro-Ukrainian group sabotaged pipelines, U.S. officials say, unquote. And then later in the article in the New York Times, they state that U.S. officials rule out any evidence that President Zelensky of Ukraine himself or any top official was involved. They also claim that the intelligence points to opponents of President Putin of Russia, but they do not specify on who it actually was. What is your assessment of these developments? Can U.S. officials and intelligence be trusted on this matter? Uh, well, uh, the interesting thing is that we have now two stories. And uh, before Seymour Hersh's um, article, we didn't have a story at all. I mean, uh, there were Swedish and German and Danish investigations going on, but they didn't say a word. And in the German parliament, there were a couple of members of parliament who wanted to know things and they didn't get any answer from the German government who said it's top secret. So we didn't have a story at all. Uh, there was a suspect in the room, of course, a little talked about. Uh, that was the U.S. government, which uh, declared in February Joe Biden in a press conference with, um, with the German chancellor Olaf Scholz that uh, if Russia is going to invade Ukraine, that was before the invasion, they would uh, end the pipeline. And the reporter asked, well, how are you going to do it? It's in, within the German jurisdiction. And Biden said, well, you will see, we will be able to do it. So they announced it sort of. So uh, that led to quite a number of speculations. And then Syosh came out with his story saying that the U.S. did it, uh, CIA and Navy divers uh, with the help of Norwegian forces uh, that was based on unnamed sources or source, we don't know. Uh, and uh, it was sort of reported in, in Europe, but many said, well, it's only an anonymous source. What, what can we say about it? And uh, then three weeks later now, a new story comes out, which is completely different from Seymour's story, which claims that a Ukrainian group, whatever that is, six people, according to Zeit and uh, German public broadcasters and others, um, uh, were in a yacht, in a, in a, in a boat, uh, and uh, were, uh, put the explosives there. But this story raises a lot of questions. Um, first of all, as you mentioned, Swedish and German authorities said from the outset that uh, it must have been state actors, most probably, because it's a very complex and dangerous op operation that is a quasi-military operation in 80 meters depth. So, uh, and I talked to some divers uh, today 
and uh, they told me that I mean to go to 80 meters it's really very deep for professional very well trained divers to operate in that depth only five minutes you need at least four hours of decompression uh, and of course in five minutes you cannot place the uh, the explosives so you need many many hours of decompression so you need a lot of air if not a decompression chamber and so you need very professional divers and very professional equipment and it's not clear whether this bunch of six people uh, with unknown identities uh, could have run such an operation there are many other questions coming up uh, the new york times says that uh, they are sure that there are no uh, U.S. and British citizens were involved, while Die Zeit and other German media say they don't know anything about the identities and that they were uh, that they used um, fake passports. So there are contradictions between the New York Times story and uh, the other story. So uh, for me, it raises a lot of questions. Of course, we don't know also with the, the story by Cy Hirsch if it was really the way Cy Hirsch uh, presented things. Um, so it's it's an ongoing debate. It's an open discussion. Uh, but the news stories that emerged have many, many holes and open questions and contradictions that we have to address. So viewers watching this uh, might get confused um, on who did it. Uh, there's speculation going uh, left, right and center what should the international community and the people asking for right now at this stage? Well, uh, I think we need an independent international investigation into this. And that's what also some uh, members of parliament from Die Linke, from the left party in the German parliament have asked for. Because uh, state actors, I mean, we are in wartime. And uh, state actors, in my view, cannot be trusted, especially if they are either part of, of Russia or of, of NATO. And the parties involved in this story, uh, the most recent story, all the sources, which are also anonymous, uh, they refer to so-called U.S. officials, according to New York Times. They refer to uh, German agencies, uh, Danish agencies, and, uh, and Swedish authorities. Sweden is not in NATO yet, but will become a NATO member soon, probably. Uh, so we need, uh, and there are a lot of implications. I mean, if it turns out that the US did it, that would have huge implications for NATO. If the US bombed crucial infrastructure of their own allies, I mean, we don't know where this ends. It could be the end of NATO. So there is a lot at stake. And all state actors, including the Germans, I mean, there's a lot of fear around that something could turn out that is very detrimental to, to, to NATO and others. So we need an independent investigation that is free from these considerations and that takes into account all hints that we have, all stories, the story of Cyhurst, the new story, and all the other evidence or uh, um, suggestions that come up. Let us switch gears here and move on to the issue of diplomacy surrounding the war in Ukraine. Analysts from independent media outlets repeatedly make the claim that the West, led by the US, does not seek peace, undermines any initiatives that were centered around diplomacy. How credible is this claim? Are there any facts to support it? 
Well, uh, th there have been uh, negotiations between the Ukrainians and the Russians last spring in March. Um, and uh, according to Naftali Bennett, who was then the prime minister of Israel, uh, there was, um, uh, he talked to Putin directly, he was in Moscow um, to, to talk with Putin directly, he talked to Zelensky directly, he was asked by Zelensky to foster uh, some kind of dialogue uh, between the two parties and he said uh, he were, there were uh, both sides um, engaged in uh, uh, huge concessions. Uh, according to him, the Russian side said they um, uh, they could move back to to uh, the lines of the 20th February uh, February 24 last year, um, and uh, according to him also um, Zelensky was uh, prepared to um, accept neutrality of Ukraine. That means no NATO membership, which he also publicly said. Um, so he was confident that an agreement for ceasefire, at least, could be reached. He said it was like a 50 to 50 chance. And he explicitly said in a long interview that at the end, the West blocked it. That were his words, and especially the US and Britain, uh, Germany and France having a more moderate position on this. So that raises huge questions. And the, the uh, what the Turkish foreign min minister in those days said confirms this. He also said there was uh, uh, that an agreement were, was within reach or was possible at least. And if indeed the West didn't want a ceasefire, that raises huge questions. First of all, why? Why could the, the West want to have a war going on for a longer time. And if there was a chance that a peace agreement could or a ceasefire could have been agreed on at that time, I mean, there were 200,000 dead since then. And so the question is whether these casualties could have been avoided with such an agreement. So the, the West might bear a huge responsibility. And for the current situation, of course, this raises the question if a new uh, initiative for ceasefire and for peace negotiations uh, could be worthwhile pursuing. That's what uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, has said. He said it's time to negotiate. So even in the Pentagon, in the U.S. military establishment, there are voices that say we should negotiate. The German Chancellor and many other leading figures uh, claim that weapons will lead to peace. Uh, let me quote the German Chancellor here, Olaf Scholz. Wanting peace does not mean submitting to a bigger neighbor. If Ukraine stops defending itself, it will not mean peace but the end of Ukraine. Do you think this is an accurate assessment um, that weapons will lead to peace? Well, it's a sort of Orwellian speech, uh, Orwellian language, of course, that weapons are there for peace, weapons are there to kill people, first of all. So we have to be careful with our language. Uh, I think an argument can be made that uh, a country that is invaded uh, by a foreign army has the right to defend itself. That's also within uh, the, the UN Charter that you can defend itself. And so there could be an argument that the people that in a state that has been invaded needs weapons. But you have to have a realistic assessment 
uh, of the situation on the ground. And the situation is a kind of stalemate uh, between Russia and Ukraine for a long time. And now Russia is even making gains on the ground. Uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, uh, just said today that um, Bakhmut, the city of Bakhmut, might fall in the coming days, uh, which would be, according to Zelensky himself, a huge blow to Ukraine. So uh, the idea that Ukraine in the near future would be able to take back all of Donbass and even Crimea I think is not really realistic. So you have to ask yourself if uh, uh, it is really a good idea to sacrifice hundreds and thousands of more soldiers and civilians for gains in a territory that are not really clear. And uh, so I think the only way to go here is uh, for negotiations. Other leading figures uh, in Europe, such as the European Commissioner Ursula von der Leyen, regularly cites that Russia is violating international law and order and diplomacy that takes into account uh, territorial concessions will only incentivize as well as send false signals to authoritative states that they can invade any country they want whenever they like without any repercussions. Is the West in the position to make an argument based on international law and order. I mean, uh, that's sort of ridiculous, given the track record of Western countries, including the US, of course. I mean, they uh, they didn't care at all for the integrity of Iraq. I mean, it was an illegal invasion of Iraq, which led to about a million deaths. Uh, um, and uh, the war in, in Libya and many other places. I mean, the U.S. has a track record of regime change, of um, uh, coup d'etats uh, since the 1950s uh, all over the place. And so I think the West, even if you take into consideration 500 years of violent colonialism around the world, the West is in a very bad position to uh, give moral lectures here. Uh, I think you can make the argument in principle that, of course, uh, you shouldn't allow other states to infringe into the affairs of other states, but the US has engaged in these things for decades. Uh, and uh, so, of course, it's it's not okay in both, uh, in both cases, if the US does it or if Russia does it, of course. Uh, so, but uh, we have to assess the real situation on the ground. Uh, Russia will not um, uh, give back Crimea without uh, any substantial, uh, I think in, it won't give Crimea in, uh, away in, under any circumstances. And that was, by the way, in March already part of the negotiations. Zelensky was prepared to say, okay, let's put Crimea aside at least for a decade or so. We have to figure out the other things, neutrality, the Donbass and so on. And we will talk about uh, Crimea later. And that could also be a, a kind of approach. It has become much more difficult today, of course, uh, because of the atrocities on both sides and because of uh, uh, the deteriorated situation. But let's take the example of Korea. I mean, uh, they haven't had a peace agreement for, for decades, but at least they reached a ceasefire. They had a ceasefire line and the killing stopped. And so maybe that could be a model for today. Let us put this war into a geopolitical context. 
Since the start of the war, the US has sent over $30 billion of military aid to Ukraine with the justification of attaining peace with weapons. If the United States and allies, as you uh, mentioned in our uh, previous question, do not really seek peace, then what in your view is the underlying goal here? Well, you have to see that many wars are uh, not only one war, but many wars at the same time. In Ukraine, for example, you have a regional war. You started with a regional war in the Donbass, and then it uh, Russia was implied. The U.S. was even apply, uh, implied before. They had a role in the Maidan um, coup d'état in, in the regime change uh, in 2014. And so there was a geopolitical uh, dimension there from the outset. And uh, the point is that the U.S. has said, or uh, key thinkers of U.S. foreign policy have said often that Ukraine is pivotal. It's key uh, for many reasons. It's uh, key to um, to stop a deep alliance between Russia and Western Europe. Russia has the resources and the energy and Western Europe, especially Germany, has the know-how. And the US was always afraid, even in the two world wars, they were afraid uh, of an alliance between these, these forces because it would put the US in, a, in the position of the periphery of the world system. Uh, they want to be at the center of the world system. They are the hegemon. They want to stay the hegemon. And of course, the hegemony has been in decline for quite a number of years, even decades now. We see that with Afghanistan. They, I mean, they lost basically all the wars. They lost the war in Afghanistan. They lost the war in Iraq. They are, they are losing control in many parts of the world. In Latin America, they have lost control in large parts of the continent. In Africa, they are losing control. It's because of China, of course. China is the rising, rising power. Uh, many governments in the global south now have a choice. Uh, they are not completely dependent on U.S. foreign policy. They can also turn to China for trade and so on. For Take Brazil. Uh, the largest trading partner for Brazil now is China, not the U.S. And even the right-wing, extreme right-wing Bolsonaro uh, government, which was aligned with Trump, even they had a, a very, very almost cozy relation with China in terms of trade. So things are shifting. We are moving into a multipolar world, and the U.S. is uh, unwilling to accept that. And also Europe. Western Europe is all unwilling to accept that. And I think this is really crucial. The West must accept that the era of dominance is over. And if not, they will try to engage in many more military conflicts. Look at China and the Taiwan issue and so on. So it, it will be completely crazy to go uh, to war with China over this, it's not completely impossible because in Washington, I mean, I think they have lost a sense of reality. And the reality is that US hegemony is in decline. It's also about the financial system. The sanctions imposed on Russia had also the effect that uh, many countries, including China, Russia and others, are looking for different um, methods to uh, have their currency exchange. They use methods which are not based on the SWIFT system and so on and so forth. So this endangers the hegemony of the US dollar, of course, which is part of the US empire. So uh, on many levels. And I think 
the way to uh, to really um, uh, to have a transition uh, to a multipolar world will be to accept that the West is uh, has lost its dominant position, which it held for centuries. Europe is left in the middle. China is the most important trading partner of the European Union. In 2021, the EU and China traded goods worth of 696 billion euros. This represents 16% of all EU trade in goods, uh, while the United States uh, represents around 15% of trade with the EU. How would a Cold War between the US and China impact Europe? And does Europe have any options? Uh, yes, it has options, of course. Uh, I mean, still, Europe is the largest uh, um, trading, uh, the largest economic region in the world. And um, the uh, I think Europe uh, must find uh, an independent position. They should still talk to the US and trade with the US, but they should continue to do so with China. We need international collaboration for many things, including the climate change. If we go down the path to a new block confrontation, to a new Cold War or even hot war, that is devastating in, in, in many aspects. Also for, for all kinds of international collaboration to, serve, uh, to, to save the planet. So um, uh, I think uh, the, the, the German government, especially the Greens, seem to um, uh, stand for exactly the positions of the U.S. State Department. And I think they should have a, uh, an independent position. Uh, that means uh, keeping doors open, open to everyone and uh, trying to find, which has become, of course, very difficult, a new security architecture, not just for Europe, but for Eurasia as a whole and for the world as a whole. I think, in fact, the NATO has become a huge problem and an obstacle to a new peace order on the planet. After 1990, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a chance, uh, and uh, many people thought that we could go on with this, um, of demilitarization uh, and of um, decommissioning, in fact, NATO. But uh, in fact, uh, NATO expanded and uh, it's hard to see how we can have really a stable peace order with this kind of uh, military blocks, which uh, function in the logic of being opposed to other blocks. I think we need a different kind of, of peace order, including Russia, even if it's very difficult uh, now, and China. Russia will not vanish from uh, from the from from the map, and we have to find a, a mode of living with Russia. To my last question, we are seeing massive militarization take place globally on a scale perhaps humanity has never seen before. China announced a 7.2 percent increase in its defense budget for the coming year, uh, and its budget currency sits around 210 billion euros. The U.S. spends four times that amount. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz also announced last year a special 100 billion euro fund to modernize the country's military. And recently, the defense minister Boris Pistrios even asked for an extra 10 billion euros. The calls for growing NATO are growing stronger and stronger and it is expected that they will uh, uh, modernize their weapons and also strengthen their eastern fronts. 
by increasing its contingency of high alert troops from 40,000 to 300,000. How is all of this militarization impacting the social and environmental as well as democratic fabric of humanity? Well, it's devastating, I think, because, uh, um, you know, Robert Poling uh, recently uh, last year had a book with Noam Chomsky on a progressive global Green New Deal, which is a way to save the planet from climate havoc. Uh, and uh, within that plan, uh, they say we need a demilitarization to use that money for the ecological transition. And now we have this surge in militarization, so the money is not there for climate protection, uh, for the, the deep and profound transformation that we need of our economies and of our societies uh, to live on this, to go on living on this planet. Uh, I mean, we are on a path to global warming of three, four, five, or even more degrees if we go on like that. And the military is one of the largest greenhouse gas emitters. They're the single most, uh, the, uh, the greatest greenhouse gas emitter as an institution worldwide is the U.S. military. So uh, I think this this is absurd, and I think it cannot it cannot be justified with the war in Ukraine. Take the German uh, military budget now, hundred billion uh, euros more for the military, and even more now. Uh, that has nothing to do with Ukraine. These weapons are not going to go to Ukraine. Even if you argue in the logic of we have to support Ukraine with weapons, that has nothing to do with it. Uh, Russia is not going to invade any NATO country. It cannot afford to do so. The NATO budget is about $1.2 trillion a year, military budget now. And the, the Russian budget was $62 billion before the Ukraine war. So uh, it's the, the NATO budget is 20-fold. So I, how can you explain if a 20-fold budget is not enough to deter Russia, why a 30-fold budget would, would, should, should do that job? I think it's ridiculous. It's just a way to prop up the military industrial complex. And it's very dangerous because it increases the risk of a major war. Also, the, the renewal of uh, nuclear warheads and all that is going on. And it increases the risk of climate havoc. So I think we need to shrink our military budgets and put it in a social and ecological transition into a new peace order. Fabian Scheidler, independent journalist and the author of The End of the Mega Machine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And thank you guys for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to our alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram. We've been receiving a lot of messages from our viewers while we are moving away from YouTube. We are not really moving away from YouTube. This is a transition. It's a precautionary measure because YouTube has a history of censoring content from alternative and independent media sources. So be sure to join us on Rumble and Telegram. And please don't forget to donate. If you're watching this video, be sure to take into consideration there's a team behind the scenes working with the camera, audio, light, and in the case of our German videos, translating voiceover correction. So be sure to donate so you can return the value that you receive from our independent and non-profit news and analysis. I'm your host, Zan Raza. See you guys next time.